Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Our texts for today, the gospel, in particular these words of our Lord Jesus, and he said, Do you think that I have come to bring peace upon the earth? No, I tell you, but division. Dear friends in Christ, it's hard to believe, isn't it? But it's now 20 years ago that Saddam Hussein's forces invaded Kuwait, setting in motion the U.S. military action that's only now this week finally beginning to come to some kind of a close as American forces begin to withdraw gradually from Iraq. And so no longer are city names like Baghdad and Fallujah and Mosul, the names of cities that'll greet us in the news so often during the week, but now instead, it'll be Kabul and Kandahar and Mazar Sharif, as our military has shifted its operational forces from Iraq into neighboring Afghanistan. The war on terrorism, now officially, and I suppose for some of us curiously called overseas contingency operation, has been and will continue to be a long war. In fact, it's the longest war in American history. And as is the case, and as should be the case with all wars, no matter what your political stripe might be, the question always and ultimately becomes for any of us, and as it should be with war, that we find ourselves asking, was it all, is it all worth it? Was it all, is it all necessary? It's asked of every war, and again, it should be. In fact, remember the well-known account of Winston Churchill, one day mingling informally with the troops in World War II, so devastated and battle-worn because of the battles that they were fighting, the English before the United States got into the conflict, into the war. He was approached by a soldier with that very question. Sir, the soldier said, is it all worth it? And what is it that we're fighting for? And Churchill, seeing the despair of the young man and understanding it, he smiled, and then his smile morphed into somewhat of a, a frown and a serious look at very least. And he said, young man, stop fighting and you'll soon find out what we're fighting for. The basic message that he was giving the young man and a message that we're all reminded of in times of conflict is that there are indeed some things in this life that are well worth fighting for. And for generations, those who have come before us have determined that freedom is one of those things. And so we do, and have, and God willing, will continue to fight for the freedoms that we have and enjoy in our land. There's another thing that we fight for. Truth. Freedom. Truth. In fact, the words of our text for today speak of divisions among people on account of truth, on account indeed of Christ. And they have to be understood in that sense of being a battle for truth as we contend for what Christ, who Christ is and what he has taught us, a battle for truth. Not that Christ would have his church take up arms. And let that be clear. Not that Christ would have his church take up arms to, to 
go against to resist those who reject his word. The taking up of arms is a right that God gives only to the civil government, which he has ordained for the establishment and for the maintenance of order and peace in the world. It is not, it never has been, the prerogative of the Church of Christ. As Luther says when he speaks of the two kingdoms of God, and we'll be speaking of this more in the Bible class today, the kingdom of the left hand, civil society, is that kingdom which God rules through secular authority. And the kingdom of the right hand, namely his church, is that which he rules through the word of God alone. The word and the sacrament ruling in the kingdom of his right hand, the church, secular power, the sword ruling in the left-hand kingdom, the kingdom of secular society, the two kingdoms using two different tools to accomplish God's purposes. The government's tool is the rule of law enforced by the sword. The church's tool is the rule of God that is brought about by persuasion of God's word and by the sacraments that he has given us. So when we speak of something worth fighting for in terms of the truth, as it applies to the church, we are using the word fighting only in the sense that divisions are going to result among people as they encounter that truth and receive it gladly and thankfully or reject it. There will be a consequence. There will be division that occurs as we then, as God's people, contend for the truth. Let it be clear, especially in this day, when religious fanaticism of some would use the sword to impose their religion upon others, let it be clear that when we speak in the Christian church of contending for the truth, we do not mean fighting in a militaristic or a physical sense at all, but rather compelling persuasion of the word of God as it does its work among us. Even at that, to our very sensitive 20th and 21st century ears, the whole notion of there being division in families and division in society because of the word of God isn't at all the politically correct thing to think or to say. Fighting words are not politically correct. It's not what we would expect to come from the mouth of Christians, let alone from the mouth of Christ himself. And yet that's exactly what our text today says, what it talks about. We're not inclined to think that way because it was Jesus of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke and called the Prince of Peace. And the angelic hosts hovering in flight over the shepherds outside of Bethlehem, what did they say? Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. And now here we have this very one of whom St. Paul speaks when he says, Now in Christ Jesus you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. You have this one who is peace, the one who brings peace to us, the one who speaks peace to us, this very one who is made for peace between God and man, the only one who can reconcile us into God the Father. And here our text says, that he said, do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? I tell you, no, not peace, but division. Not peace, but a sword. What do we make to make of these 
difficult words, these hard words, heavy words. We could discard them, we could try to reinterpret them, but they are what they are. They say what they say, and then to make them even heavier, Jesus goes on to say that this division of which he speaks is going to affect most intimately, the most intimate unit of human society is going to infect and affect even the family. And so many of us know it by our own experiences too, don't we? Jesus says, therefore, because of me, because of what you believe about me, of what I say, I am the truth, the way, because of me, father will be against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, members of households divided against each other. How can this be, we ask? Why must it be? Well, Jesus' words to us today remind us that while he is indeed the, the divine establisher of peace between God and man, and only Christ establishes that peace with God the Father, he also is the one over whom sinners on earth because of their sins, not because of him, but because of their sins, will so often find themselves, sadly, at odds with each other. When, for example, his word is preached and his word is believed, conflict will arise, even among friends, even in the family. Why? Because his word calls us to commitment. His word calls us and enables us not only to be committed, but then to confess our faith openly with one another. And some within a family may well resent that commitment and the changes that it brings into our daily lives and even to our behavior. And that resentment may well become a barrier that is then set, unfortunately, between us. God's word calls us to consistency. And some will denounce our consistency as being a form of religious fanaticism. It calls us to fidelity. And if we're suddenly unwilling to do those things which we perhaps once did with friends, how long do you think it will be before those friends no longer think of us as being friends? And so we're tempted because we're intimidated by potential discomfort of confrontation, who likes confrontation? Few of us indeed. And because we try to avoid confrontation, we find ourselves then tempted to travel down the road of accommodation and concession. Can't we just give a little bit here so that we can have peace here? Can't we give in a bit here? Can't we bend a bit over here? Can't we be flexible enough to accommodate what we know to be wrong here in order to accomplish the greater peace over here? When it comes to your own personal likes and dislikes, by all means. When it comes to individual preferences and individual tastes, when it comes to those things about which God's word says nothing, or those things which won't adversely detract from the gospel, from the truth of God's word, or those things which won't harm the soul of someone else that we dearly love, then yes, we may be and we should be the most pliable of people. Making concessions here and there and everywhere when it comes to personal tastes and likes, 
bending with the pliability of a, of a willow twig, yielding even our rights as husbands and wives and neighbors and friends, if to do so would secure love within our homes and peace across our fences, adapting to whatever changes are necessary, yielding in every way that is required in the spirit of St. Paul, who said, I become all things to all men in order that I may by all means save some. But, but when it comes to the word of God, when it comes to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, we dare not concede anything. Because there it is not our concession to make. He has spoken. When it comes to the word of God, we dare concede nothing because too much of eternal things is at stake. Then love requires steadfastness. Then love, as hard as it might be for us to do, love requires immovable rigidity. Because so much more than my personal whims and my personal desires and fancies are at stake, when God's word is compromised, then the saving truth itself is at stake. Our point of reference for everything else in life falters and we end up being in a moral relativism that engulfs the rest of the world around us. And all of life and all of eternity is suddenly found to be in the balance when we compromise that word of truth that God has graciously given his people. And that's why Luther, when once pushed to compromise God's word and doctrine, for the sake of love and peace there in the church of his time, Luther said, a curse on any so-called love that is observed at the expense of the doctrine of faith, to which everything in this world must yield. Love, an apostle, yea, even an angel from heaven." Unquote. Can you imagine something like that being said in our day, in our politically correct day. Interestingly, Luther's uncompromising confession even seemed strong for his day. And his day was a much tougher day than ours in terms of what people would say to each other, not at all as politically correct. And he was accused, therefore, because of his rigidity when it came to doctrine and to the word of God, he was accused of disturbing the harmony of the church, to which Luther answered, I hold that a solemn and a vital truth of eternal consequences at stake in this discussion, one so crucial and fundamental that it must be maintained and it must be defended at the cost of life itself, though as a result the whole world should be not just thrown into turmoil and uproar, but shattered in chaos and reduced to nothingness. To Luther, the truth of the gospel of Christ was something that he would not and could not compromise because it was not his to give an inch on. Truth matters that much. Truth is worth fighting for, especially the truth of the gospel, so much so that Luther would insist that not even the smallest point of the word of God should be compromised for the sake of peace, and so he said, if I profess with the loudest voice and I declare with the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except that one little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, 
then I'm not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing him. For where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. Therefore, he said, if you want to testify to the truth, then be prepared to have your enemies, the devil with his angels, the world with all its wisdom and its greatest intellects, and sadly, perhaps even father and mother and best friends, be prepared to have them stand against you. This is, he concludes, there is, he concludes, no other possible way. Now don't be surprised then that that would happen to us in our day. And doesn't it help us to understand Christ's hard words in our text for today? Do you think that I've come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you about division. You see, the life of the committed, the consistent, the confessing Christian isn't going to be a life of peaches and cream floating along through it on a bed of ease. It will be, for he who remains faithful, it will be a life of conflict with the world and with our own sinful nature from the earliest days of our Christianity to our latter days. From the time that we leave the font to the time that we exit the gridiron of life and are finally called home by our Father. All newborn soldiers of the crucified bear on their brows the seal of him who died, we sing in that great baptismal hymn, thereby acknowledging from the time that a child leaves the font, he's become a soldier, one who fights for Christ, a combatant of the cross that he bears. But we don't let that discourage us. It's not any different for us than it has been for any other who bears the name of Christ in the world. We're surely not the first. We won't be the last to feel the estrangement, the alienation of the world because of our convictions. What about those saints of the past? What about that, that great cloud of witnesses that we heard about in today's epistle lesson? Those witnesses who surround us, the epistle lesson said. Those confessors of the past who, the writer of Hebrews said, experienced mockings and scourgings and chains and imprisonment, who were sawn in two and who were put to death with the sword and were afflicted and ill-treated, men and women, it says, of whom the world was not worthy. And what about our Lord Jesus himself, whose own family, own family on one occasion, reported by St. Mark, quote, went out and took custody of him, for they were saying he had lost his senses. Our Lord Jesus, whose hometown of Nazareth was offended by him and tried to toss him off the cliff. Our Lord Jesus, whose very own brothers were not believing in him, Scripture says. Our Lord Jesus, whose very own disciples forsook him, one betraying him, one denying him, others fleeing from him. Our Lord Jesus, who, St. John says, came to his own, and his own would not receive him. Our Lord Jesus, who for your sake and mine bore that ultimate symbol of human rejection, the cross, and made that symbol of human rejection, the beautiful symbol instead of our salvation. 
Can he empathize with you? And any alienation from others that you feel because of your confession of him, he most certainly does. Therefore, as today's epistle lesson says, fix your eyes upon him. Fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author, the perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary or lose heart. It's so easy to lose heart when you're weary and the war is long and you're bruised and beaten by the battle knowing that and sensing that. What was it, remember, that Winston Churchill, speaking of him again, said to his men when they were worn and weary by the battle that they were fighting at the end of World War II? That's when he entered, remember, the, the British House of Commons in 1940, beginning of World War II, it should set. He entered the House of Commons in 1940, 70 years ago this year. He stood before the House of Commons and he uttered those famous words that rallied not only a war-torn nation, but finally encouraged America to come into the battle as well and to fight the war with them as well with their English cousins. Churchill said, we shall fight in France, we shall fight on the seas and the oceans, we shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air, we shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the land grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. You see, some things are worth fighting for. Freedom from earthly tyrants is one of them. Christ and his word is most certainly another because it's Christ and his word which sets us free from what would otherwise be an eternal tyranny. And therefore, Luther says, I must place the word of God above everything. I must hazard life and limb and the world's favor and my property and my honor and all that I have, that I may keep the word of God and cling to Christ as my most precious treasure on earth and in all of heaven. By God's grace, may we all be so faithful and so bold. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand and sing with me.